everyone and welcome to a brand new edition of the S Factor for March 5th, 2022. What is the S Factor? Well, the S Factor is all about the latest and greatest in science news. So if you have a curious mind, you want to stay tuned. Stay put right on this great radio station, Cruising 92.1 WVLT. My name is Chuck Shazer, and of course, the S Factor, the S in S Factor stands for science, and the S Factor radio show slash podcast is brought to you by scienceanimated.net. Our first news bit here is from Live Science. China rover spots strange glass spheres on far side of the moon. China's U-22 rover has spotted two strange glass spheres on the far side of the moon. Glistening like translucent pearls against the moon's dry and dusty landscape, spherules are the first of their kind to be found on a lunar surface. Informed fairly recently, researchers say. Glass has been spotted on the moon before by both U-22 rover and NASA's Apollo 16 mission. It forms when silicon-rich minerals, such as pyrazine and feldspar, are rapidly superheated. However, this is the first time glass spheres have been found on the moon. Scientists don't know the exact origins of these spherules, but they think the little balls or globules may have been made during an explosive eruption in the moon's volcanic history, or after a high-speed impact with a meteorite. The researchers will publish their findings in the journal Science Bulletin. The globules simply blow your mind since they are so unique on the moon, lead author Zion Zai, a planetary geologist at San Yanzhen University in China, said in the statement, It is a bit unfortunate that when we first found these glasses, the rover had just passed by them and no compositional data were obtained. But such globules might be pretty common in the lunar far side. And if you see a picture of these, they are quite interesting. They absolutely do look like little spheres, glass spheres. Now, glass spherules known as microtechitites, have been found on Earth around the sites of meteorite impacts, live science previously reported. Upon being struck by a meteorite, chunks of planetary crust are thrown up into the air, and the molten silicate minerals contained therein combine to form tiny glass beads that are sprinkled like crumbs over the surrounding landscape. Now, they measure 0.6 to 1 inch in diameter, are larger than those found on Earth. However, they are smaller than the glass chunks that Apollo 16 astronauts found near an impact crater on the moon's near side, the largest of which measured 1.57 inches in diameter. Now, these little tiny glass spheres they found on the moon, by that U-22 found on the moon, are also found near impact craters, leading the researchers to believe that the tiny spheres formed from a feldspar-rich ingenious rock called anorthosite that melted and reformed in the immediate aftermath of a meteor collision. Anorthosites are excellent raw materials to manufacture glasses with good lit-emitting quality. Their existence on the moon indicates that impact events on the other planetary bodies could also form tectite-like impact glasses. Now, collecting these ball-bearing-like spheres and studying their composition and ages could help scientists understand the impact history of the moon as well as provide useful information about potential building materials on the lunar surface. So China's U-22 rover has spotted some very interesting things since it's been there. Remember, earlier this year, their rover took a photo of something that they called a space hut. It looked like a hut. They didn't know what it was. 
when they got a little bit closer, they realized that it was just a rock. Of course, that happens many times when we get excited about, you know, you see something that looks a specific shape on Mars surface. We have these great images. Upon further examination, it's not uh, some kind of an animal. It always turns out to be a rock, but it creates some excitement along the way. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, Oh my goodness, I was so scared, my life just flashed before my eyes. There are many things I'm interested in, including the possibility of, of course, I think we all are, of life after death. And I have, I have read that one theory about why our life flashes before our eyes that I, it always struck me as making a lot of sense if that is, in fact, what happens. So a while ago, I remember reading about a near-death experience and somebody said their life flashed before their eyes and they felt like the reason that happened is so they could learn these life lessons, you know, and then you feel the person's pain that maybe you accidentally inflicted upon someone. Maybe you said something that upset somebody or did something that upset someone. So the whole purpose of the life flashing before your eyes is so that you see how your behavior and, and your actions have affected others, good and bad. So this next story is right up that alley. First ever scan of a dying human brain reveals life may actually flash before your eyes. So it might happen after all. After an elderly patient died suddenly during a routine test, scientists accidentally captured unique data on the activity in his brain at the very end of his life. During the 30 seconds before and after the man's heart stopped, his brain waves were remarkably similar to those seen during dreaming. Memory, recall, and meditation, suggesting that people may actually see their life flash before their eyes when they die. The phenomenon of replaying past memories when you die has been reported by some who have had near-death experiences, but this is the first scientific evidence that this flash might be real. However, as this is the only case study, it is impossible to make further assumptions about how common the phenomenon may be or what the experience may be like. Researchers made the startling discovery in 2016 while studying the brain activity in an 87-year-old Canadian man who had developed epilepsy. The team was performing an EEG, a test that detects abnormalities in the electrical activity of the brain, to learn more about what was happening during his seizures. That's when the man suffered a sudden and fatal heart attack. The patient's unexpected death meant that the team had accidentally made the first ever recording of a dying brain, the researchers said in a statement. In total, the researchers recorded around 900 seconds of brain activity leading up to and immediately after the patient's death. This allowed them to see how his neural oscillations, repetitive patterns of neural activity, also known as brain waves, changed as he was dying. They found that in the 30 seconds before and after his heart stopped, there was an unusual change in his brainwave activity. Just before and after the heart stopped working, we saw changes in a specific band of neural oscillations. Senior researcher Dr. Amal Zemmer, a neurosurgeon at the University of Toronto in Canada at the time of the man's case, said in a statement, These specific types of oscillations are known as gamma waves. Now, neural oscillations are classified based on their frequency and amplitude. Gamma waves have a frequency between 30 and 100 hertz, the highest frequency of any oscillation, and are most commonly observed in the brain when people access their memory center in a region called the hippocampus during dreams. Now, what they're saying here is 
They know this because they have studied people when they're dreaming, and that is the region that lights up, the hippocampus, the region of memory, the memory center. The team also gathered data on other types of oscillations during death, including delta, theta, alpha, and beta waves. But it was the gamma waves that pointed toward the man relying, replaying memories from throughout his life in his brain, a phenomenon known as life recall. Though generating oscillations involved in memory retrieval, the brain may be playing a last recall of important life events just before we die, similar to the ones reported in near-death experiences, Emmer said in a statement. Experiments in rats have shown that the rodents also experience similar levels of gamma oscillations around the time of death, according to the statement. Therefore, the researchers speculate that life recall may be a universal experience shared by a majority of mammal dying brains although there is a minimal evidence to back this up. But the researchers warn that it would be premature to conclusively state that life recall is a real phenomenon. The dying man was elderly and had epilepsy, which is known to alter gamma wave activity. This could have meant his brain activity during death was different from that of someone without epilepsy. There's no way to know if the man was actually seeing or perceiving his past memories or if he was just in a dreamlike state brought on by his failing nervous system. Therefore, much more research is needed to make concrete conclusions about life recall, the researchers cautioned. The report of the man's case was not published until six years after his death because the researchers were hoping to uncover more case studies of dying brains to support their claims. However, the findings could provide a source of comfort to friends and family members during the indescribably difficult experience of losing loved ones, the researchers said. Although our loved ones have their eyes closed and are ready to leave us to rest, their brains may be replaying some of the nicest moments they experienced in their lives. And I think that would be a comforting thing for people to experience. What do you think the reason this happens is? Is there a reason? Do you think there even is a reason? The fact that this takes place after we die, do you think there's a reason for that? If you're a religious person, it's going to make a lot of sense. I want to know what you think. Send me an email. This is a pre-recorded show, but I love when my audience sends me email questions, comments. Send your questions and comments about this or any topic discussed today to info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The S-Factor, where it's all about science, right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. You can catch me here and anytime at scienceanimated.net. We'll be right back.
What great music there. Welcome back to The S Factor, where it's all about science. And you can catch me right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock or anytime at scienceanimated.net. And if you dig the show and you want to listen to archive shows where I've covered so many topics, be sure to check out your favorite podcasting service and type in The S Factor Podcast and you will find me there. Also, don't forget to check out scienceanimated.net where you can find Science Animated Human Body. You can help support the show by purchasing that DVD or stream. It's a 40-minute DVD. Totally family-friendly, very exciting. You can also check out the YouTube videos, and I'm on TikTok, at Science Animated. You can also check me out on Facebook, facebook.com slash scienceanimated, twitter.com slash scienceanimated. I am everywhere, so if you dig exciting educational content, be sure to check me out online. Also, be on the lookout to own one-of-a-kind NFTs, science-animated NFTs. It's going to be a -a one-of-a-kind investment that you can purchase by visiting scienceanimated.net. Just go to your browser, go to your address bar at the very top, type in scienceanimated.net. You'll find all things science animated there, including news about the um, upcoming NFTs that are going going to go up for sale and other things on the horizon. Stay tuned for that. Also, there is a support us tab. If you go to scienceanimated.net, it's another way you can help support the show so I can continue on with the greatest educational content that is out there on the internet. Our next news story is about a new planet that has been discovered. This is from Science Alert. What appears to be a teeny tiny alien world has just been found orbiting the solar system's closest stellar neighbor. The exoplanet candidate named Proxima d orbits a star named Proxima Centauri, a small dim red dwarf star just 4.2 light years from the Sun. Amazingly, the exoplanet is just a quarter of the mass of Earth. That makes it one of the smallest exoplanets ever detected, and the smallest detected by observing the exoplanet's gravitational effect on its star. The discovery also marks the third exoplanet found orbiting Proxima Centauri, and although the newly discovered world would not be inhabitable, its detection suggests that there's a whole wealth of exoplanets out there just outside the reach of our current capabilities. The discovery shows that our closest stellar neighbor seems to be packed with interesting new worlds within reach of further study and future exploration. To date, nearly 5,000 exoplanets, which is planets outside the solar system, have been discovered and confirmed. And we have detections of thousands more candidate exoplanets. We have two main ways for searching these exoplanets. The most widely used technique is the transit method, in which a telescope observes stars for long periods of time to detect the faint, regular dips in brightness that signal an orbiting planet passing between us and the star. The other most commonly used method is known as the radial velocity or wobble method. When two bodies such as a star and a planet are gravitationally bound, one doesn't orbit the other. Instead, they orbit their common center of mass. The solar system's barycenter, for example, is just outside the sun's surface. This causes a star to wobble slightly on the spot. In turn, that affects the light that reaches us, causing a Doppler shift. As a star moves away from us, the wavelengths of light stretch out slightly. When it moves towards us, they compress, 
astronomers can look for those regular Doppler shifts to infer the presence of an exoplanet. So if you ever wondered, when you see these headlines that say we have found, you know, X amount of exoplanets in other star systems, now you know how they detect them. What are the methods that they use? Now, both of these methods are much better at detecting bigger exoplanets. A bigger exoplanet will block more light from the star or produce a more pronounced stellar wobble. To date, just 36 exoplanets of the 32,073 recorded on the exoplanet archive are less massive than Earth. The exoplanet Proxima d is at least 0.26 times the mass of Earth, orbiting its star once every 5.12 days. That sadly means that it is too close to the star to be hospitable to life as we know it. Even a cool red dwarf would give off too much heat to support liquid water on the surface of an exoplanet so close. Nevertheless, discovery suggests that the dearth of smaller exoplanets on the record so far could simply be the result of our existing inability to reliably detect them, and that finding them is simply going to be a matter of time and technology. That new James Webb Space Telescope is going to find things that we have only dreamt of. You know, we, we make a lot of discoveries based on equations, based on, you know, the dimming of stars, as we've learned here, and the wobble effect. But the more that we can see clearly, the more exciting this is going to become. We can actually get a clear view of these worlds. Of course, as they note, the technology has to get better, but as long as Homo sapiens survives as a species long enough and we are able to dodge geological disasters or man-made ones, the technology will get better for us to see these worlds. And that will be extremely exciting. How many of my listeners have ever owned the plant, the Venus flytrap? I knew someone years ago that had one. I saw an insect trapped in there. Very interesting this next story is about the Venus flytrap from Scientific American here. Artificial neuron snaps a Venus flytrap shut. When a Venus flytrap snaps its fleshy lobes around an unsuspecting insect, it's game over for the prey. The plant's unusual habit of snacking on animals has captured the imagination of people, ranging from Charles Darwin to playwright Howard Ashman and composer Alan Mekin, known for The Little Shop of Horrors. Now in an experiment that might seem straight out of a Pulp Fiction novel, scientists have harnessed the flytrap's power for themselves. They have developed the method to trigger its trap using soft, semi-organic artificial neurons. The overarching goal of the research is to try to develop devices that can mimic the functioning of building blocks in our body. The Venus flytrap provides an efficient testing ground for an interface between living creatures and electronics that a research team in the University of Sweden hoped to one day lead to a fully integrated biosensor for monitoring human health, or a better interface for people to control advanced prosthetics with their nerves. The results were published in Nature Communications. This is not the first time scientists have controlled a Venus flytrap. Alexander Volkov of Oakwood University has been researching plant electrophysiology and specifically Venus flytraps for decades. In 2007, he and his lab hooked up silver wires to a flytrap's snapping mechanism and ran an electrical current through the system, causing the lobes to clamp shut. Such experiments work because the motion is controlled by an apparatus similar to an animal's nervous system. In the flytrap, the phloem, the tissue that transports nutrients through the plant, contains ion channels 
through which charged particles can flow. This triggers the plant's lobes to close, similar to the way electrical charge flows along an animal's nerves to send commands to its muscles. Now the plant's membranes are hyperpolarized compared with animal neurons. This means scientists have to use extra current to induce a reaction in the venous flytrap. They do so by incorporating charged chloride ions into their electronic device. To make the flytrap close, the Swedish researchers constructed a neuron-like device. They began by screen printing carbon and silver chloride electrodes onto a polyester base. It's what you use for printing labels on t-shirts. It's a very, very simple way of making electronics. Next, they attach the electrodes to the lobes and crease of the plant's trap and ran a current through the system. First at a high frequency and then at a lower one. They found the high frequency triggered a quick response, but the low frequency was not enough to close the trap. So you can begin to see why, as we, we look into this, why this would be, why this research would be so critical when it comes to creating an interface for someone to control a prosthetic, for example, just using their mind, like moving a prosthetic arm, for instance, as if it were your own. Now, the Swedish team's results are encouraging, but it's not yet ready to interface with human cells. We still have a couple of orders of magnitude before we get to the energy efficiency of our biological neurons. I think as the artificial neuron becomes more efficient, the technology could potentially be used to establish a link between a person's signaling nerves and an artificial limb, allowing for seamless prosthetic control. And what a great thing that would be once we figure that out, where these people that, whether they are in warfare or had some kind of a tragic accident in their life, their life, if someone lost a limb of some kind, a finger, whatever it may be, this research can ultimately lead to having a prosthetic that actually works seamlessly with your mind. Incredible stuff. And we're always discussing incredible things here on the S Factor, where it's all about science. My name is Chuck Shazer. This show is brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. I want to thank you for joining me today on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. Or if you're listening to the podcast, wherever you may be around the world, Thank you for joining me here today. Going to take a quick commercial break. I'll be right back. Would you like to get into better shape, lose weight, have more energy, be toned, be stronger, be faster, have better endurance? Well, there's a solution. Tawny Fit. Certified personal trainer Tawny Basil is the owner of Tawny Fit. And having Tawny Basil as your personal trainer can help you get the results you're looking for. Now, whether you want to go to a gym with Tawny Basil and have her by your side showing you the right way to do the exercises, coming up with the perfect plan for you with your goals in mind, with your personal goals in mind, that's one way you can do it. Also, if you don't want to leave the home, you can do training virtually with Tawny Basil. She, will, she has virtual sessions, so you don't have to leave the comfort of your home. And now she also has a facility where you can come to her in a little private gym and you can get your workout in that way. So contact Tawny Basil at tawnyfit at gmail.com. That's tawnyfit at gmail.com for rates. And I think you had an offer, by the way, for the S-Factor folks, didn't you? With a free session if they mention the show? Absolutely. If we don't you want to mention forget that. the show, you get a free session. 
Um, you can reach me at 609-674-8077. Text ready. That's right, folks. I'll give you that number one more time. If you want to contact Tawny Basil, text her the message ready to 609-674-8077 or email Tawny. Her email address is tawnyfit at gmail.com. Another great tune there. Welcome back to the S Factor, where it's all about science. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. And I welcome you back. Welcome aboard my starship as we continue on with the greatest science news and information that you're going to find anywhere. Have you ever walked into someone's house and kind of have been hit in the face with a, an aroma, whether it's good or bad? <laughs> and... It seems as though the people that live in that house have no idea. They almost seem like they're immune to whatever the smell may be. That leads us to our next topic. This next bit of information is from How Stuff Works. Why can't you smell your own house? Everybody's house smells in some way. There are temporary smells of bread in the oven or a fresh bouquet of flowers or dog gas. But there's also that particular way that your house just smells. You almost never notice the way your own place smells. You notice the way everyone else's place smells as soon as you walk in. And by the way, I, I had a dog for many years. And I, well, about 16 years to be exact. And I, I love this dog. I, I took care of him, got him groomed, played with him. He loved me. I loved him. And when he passed away, I, I never got another one. Well, after going so many years without having a dog, I walked into, you know, someone's house that had a dog and in there, you know, kept their place as reasonably clean as you would expect. But you could, I could always smell the dog in the house. Now, when you walk into someone else's house, there could be cats, uh, their laundry soap, the new carpet they just got. All of these things add up to the way their house smells. But you can only smell your own house after you've been away for a while. Like a long while. Not just a work day, but like a week. That's very interesting. That is very true. Think about that. Have you ever gone on vacation, came back home, and for better or worse, you smelled your house? You're like, whoa, what is that? Good or bad? If you know what I'm talking about, when it comes to this, if you've experienced this, if you know it very well, email me. I think that would be a treat. Email me 
info at scienceanimated.net. Tell me your story. Info at scienceanimated.net. I want to know, I want to hear your story in respect to, to this. What have you experienced when you've walked into a house? It could be your own. It could be someone else. You don't have to name drop. But have you ever walked into a house and good or bad just got slammed in the face with this aroma? I say aroma. It sounds better than smell. The smell. <laughs> I'd like to hear from you. Info at scienceanimated.net. I don't take phone calls because this is a pre-recorded show, but please email me. I think it'd be really cool, especially when it comes to this topic, because I think we've all experienced this. Now, the reason this happens is sensory adaptation. That's the scientific way to say that you just get used to it. And it's more pronounced for our sense of smell than any other sense, like our hearing, for instance. Researcher Pamela Dalton at the Monell Chemical Senses Center has done a lot of work on sensory adaptation. She and her team say the adaptation means you respond less when a stimulus is repeated. So when you're at home, the smell of your house is all around you. It never goes away. It's not just repeated. You're swimming in it. So you become adapted to the way it smells. After even a few breaths of a smell, Dalton says you begin to acclimate to it. You start to experience that smell as being less intense and eventually take no note of it at all. That's why you can smell your friend's house when you walk in, but you don't really notice it the entire time you're there. Being able to detect smells is important. It might signal danger, like an approaching tiger, or it might signal something pleasant, like that fresh bread or that bouquet of flowers. So once that signal happens in your brain, you don't really have to continue to notice it. So instead, your nose can stay on the lockout for new smells that are dangerous or delicious. Now, there's an entire industry devoted to making your house smell better. But before you walk down that scented path, make sure the stinky problem isn't truly bad. I mean, it could be mold, mildew, old pet urine soaked in the floors, dirty ductwork, things of that sort. So it might just be a simple housekeeping issue, like a dishwasher that needs to be cleaned or mildewy towels in the bathroom. And if you still want to change the way your house smells, there are a million candles, incense sticks, and oil diffusers that might do the trick. So there you have it. Our brain gets used to these aromas. And that has to do with evolution. Of course, it's important. It was very important for us to, I mean, all of the senses that we have are extremely important or we wouldn't have them, quite honestly. So it can, you know, warn you of something potentially. But once that initial trigger happens, there's no reason to for your for that signal to keep firing over and over and over again. That's why you don't smell it after some time. Very interesting article there that I think we could all relate to in some way. We're going to take another quick time out. Don't forget to check out scienceanimated.net, my website, where you can purchase Science Animated the Human Body as a DVD or a stream, a very inexpensive gift for someone, the gift of education, entertainment. I have a money-back guarantee on that DVD. That's how confident I am that you will love that film, and that's available as a DVD or a stream on scienceanimated.net. Also, you can check out free educational content there as well. I'm on YouTube, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and now I'm on TikTok with some animated shorts. You can find me by typing in at Science Animated. Also, NFTs. My artwork animation will be available as one-of-a-kind NFTs very soon. You can check that out by going to scienceanimated.net. I'll have some information there soon about that. 
It will be available through OpenSea and of course you use that cryptocurrency Ethereum to purchase. But more on that in the coming days. So any support that you can give me will be greatly appreciated and helps me continue on with this educational content, whether it's here on the S-Factor radio show that also becomes a podcast or if it's with educational content online. Appreciate all of your support as always. More S-Factor after this short break. back to the S Factor where it's all about science right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT or anywhere you catch your favorite podcasts. I talk an awful lot about Elon Musk and his inventions here on the S Factor. One thing that we have talked about in the past is his very ambitious goal to hook up the globe to the internet via his Starlink satellites in low Earth orbit. If you think about all of the satellites that are in orbit, it is astonishing. I'm going to go over some information for you here in this next story in regards to that and how potentially dangerous satellites or space trash can be in orbit. Now, space trash could kill satellites, space stations, and astronauts. Seven astronauts aboard the International Space Station woke to unwelcome news on the morning of November 15, 2021. NASA, the U.S. Space Agency, was worried. The station was zooming directly into a suddenly dangerous area littered with trash. A collision could damage the spacecraft, and that could threaten the safety of everyone inside. NASA warned the astronauts to take cover. The astronauts closed the hatches between sections of the ISS and climbed into escape ships. Then they waited. Fortunately, they transited the area without a mishap. All clear. Soon, the source of all that debris 
would be revealed. Earlier that day, the Russian government had launched a rocket to blow up a big satellite. The satellite hadn't worked since the 80s. This launch was testing a new missile technology. Now, while the missile did its job, the explosion created a debris field. The shattered satellite showered space with some 1,500 pieces of trash big enough to see and track by telescope. It also produced hundreds of thousands of smaller pieces. Even a small piece could have ripped a hole through the exterior of the ISS. And the threat from this one satellite may persist for years, years if not decades. Now, space junk like this races around the planet at up to 5 miles per second. Yes, you heard that right. Think about how fast that is. It travels around at 5 miles per second. The speed of an impact can reach 15 kilometers per second or 10 times as fast as a bullet. NASA scientists estimate that a marble-sized piece could smash into another object with as much force as a bowling ball traveling at 300 miles an hour. Now think about the damage that could be inflicted on a space station or an astronaut floating around working on a space station. This is dangerous stuff, folks. The ISS passes through the same spot every 93 minutes as it circles the planet. On that mid-November day, everyone aboard feared an impact. But this wasn't the first or the last time space junk had threatened a mission. The explosion prompted NASA to cancel a planned November 30th spacewalk. The Chinese space station, with three astronauts on board, had to change course because of the Russian satellite. Just three days before the explosion, the ISS changed its orbit to avoid colliding with space junk left by the older, broken-down satellite. And on December 3rd, the ISS again changed course to avoid pieces from a different broken-down satellite. So you see a trend here. Now, space junk is a growing menace. Indeed, this trash is now the number one concern of people who study space traffic management, says Pat Seitzer, an astronomer at the University of Michigan. He uses telescopes and computers to study orbital debris. We created this risk ourselves, he says. There's stuff we can do to stop it from being a risk, now, scientists focus on the environment in outer space that's closest to Earth. The debris problem, he warns, threatens the future of space traffic. If you don't deal with it, sooner or later it will catch up. Now, the European Space Agency, or ESA, estimates that about 36,500 pieces of debris larger than 4 inches now orbit Earth. There are about a million pieces between 1 and 10 centimeters in diameter. More than 300 million pieces, still smaller, litter near space, too. Now, scientists use radar to track the biggest pieces. Now, the Soviets launched the first satellite into space, Sputnik 1, on October 4, 1957. Now, since then, governments, militaries, and companies around the world have set up tens of thousands more. Now, check this out. In 2020 alone, more than 1,200 new satellites entered space, more than any previous year. Of more than 12,000 satellites sent into space, the ESA estimates that about 7,630 are still in orbit. Only about 4,800 still work. So obviously this is it has been an issue and is becoming a more serious one. Now space debris has been growing for decades. Most of it resides in what scientists call a low Earth orbit or LEO. That means it orbits about 1,000 kilometers, which is 620 miles above above Earth's surface. Now, space debris includes big objects such as pieces of rockets used to lift satellites into space, 
It also includes things such as nose cones and payload covers from those rockets. Then there's satellites that don't work anymore or failed from the start. Now, you know, as I'm reviewing this information with you here, I mean, one thing is clear, right? It's not easy to get this stuff down. This one little tidbit of information kind of proves that. Now, one of these satellites is called Invisistat, a satellite ES ESA launched in 2002. It died 10 years ago into its mission of monitoring Earth's climate. Its carcass will likely remain a threat for at least the next 100 years. So that tells you, if something goes wrong with these satellites, they launch them up there, they die, they stay there. <laughs> so they just stay. The amount of debris is just accumulating. It's a big car crash in the sky just waiting to happen. Now, speaking of Elon Musk, his company SpaceX, of course, launched constellations of dozens of satellites, which is for its project Starlink, which we've talked about here on the S-Factor. Now, about 40% of active satellites in space belong to SpaceX. Think about that. That's a huge percentage. And they plan to launch thousands more. And they're not alone. OneWeb, a communications company, has announced plans to launch its own constellation of 300,000 satellites. So you can quickly see where we're going here and the problems that it's going to create. I mean, think about this, folks. Our GPS that, that pilots use to fly these 747s and other aircraft, that is pivotal. The GPS satellite system in, in low Earth orbit is pivotal. So we're not talking about just having access to the Internet. I mean, some of these satellites are used for the very important and crucial GPS system. Now, this is a different take on space junk. Think about this. The junk could reflect so much light that it hides the light of distant stars. So right now, scientists are trying to determine how space debris and the future flood of satellite constellations might affect telescope observations. For sensitive observations, we need a sky that's pretty clear and not highly light polluted. Now, some experts say that plans for removing satellites from orbit need to be built into a craft's design. And that's something Astroscale is doing. The company developed a magnetic docking station to bolt onto a satellite before launch. Later, when it needs repairs or removal, another vehicle can be sent up to collect it. See, now that's smart thinking. And initially... When these companies and put these things in low Earth orbit, it's such an amazing feat just to do that. You know, no one really thought of, hey, how are we going to remove this stuff? Because it wasn't really a problem for many years up until recently here. You know, in the last 10 years, it's, it's getting, especially recently, it's getting pretty hot and heavy with these satellites up there. Now, an international committee with members from space agencies around the world recommends that all new satellites have the ability to deorbit themselves within 25 years. Some satellites are close enough to do that naturally. Others aren't. Well, the ones that are high to deorbit on their own, fewer than one in four can lower themselves out of orbit, according to a July 2019 ESA report. So it's in everyone's interest for this stuff to be cleaned up or it will become everyone's problem and that's for sciencenewsforstudents.org great story there and really you can easily see how this is going to become a huge problem it's already starting to become a huge problem huge safety problem for the astronauts aboard the ISS how many of you guys have watched the movie WALL-E that Disney that Pixar movie a movie based in the future where 
Earth's orbit is littered with all kinds of satellites. So I guess the writers were trying to tell us something back then when that movie came out. They could see it coming back then. And it's not hard to predict, really, when you think about it. I mean, obviously, satellite technology is so very important to so many things here terrestrially for us. It's like so many things with us humans, isn't it? As we advance in technology, we have to come up with ways to clean up after ourselves. But I'm confident we will figure that out. I want to thank you for joining me today on The S Factor. It is always a pleasure to bring the latest and greatest in science news for you. All of this brought to you by my website, scienceanimated.net. Visit my website, support the show in any way you can. If you're listening to the podcast, the best way to support the show is to visit the website, especially if you want to purchase Science Animated Human Body, which is a 40-minute DVD on the human body. That's the best way to get it. If you're local listening to me on Cruise 92.1 WVLT, I have the DVD available in some local stores. Audrey at PhotoQuick in Vineland has some movies there. But of course, the best way to purchase the movie is through the website directly. Or if you want to go to Etsy, you can look me up. Just type in Science Animated. You'll find me on Etsy. And Facebook.com slash Science Animated. You can buy the movie directly from my Facebook page as well. So you have a few options there. And you can get it as a stream as well if you visit the website. So I appreciate that. And if, if you've purchased the movie, which I know many of you have, feel free at any time. I love getting emails about the film. Tell me what you think. Email me info at scienceanimated.net. Email me thoughts on the show, ideas for future topics you'd like me to cover. I appreciate that. I love interacting with you guys through email. And stay tuned for Science Animated NFTs that you can link directly to the OpenSea account through my scienceanimated.net page and also the social media platforms. Like I said, facebook.com slash scienceanimated twitter.com slash science animated you visit those social media channels you'll be able to get to those as well i'm sure i'll have a post up when they're ready to go once again thank you for joining me on this great radio station cruising 92.1 wvlt and also on your favorite podcasting service until next time stay safe and stay curious this is chuck shazer with the s factor where it's all about science see you next time everybody You have been listening to The S Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruisin' 92.1 WBLT.